This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Welcome you all to Studio One and acknowledge that we're gathered on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri people and to pay my respect to the elders of the Kulin Nation, both past and present. The reason we're gathered here tonight is for strange fascinations, which I'm sure some of you are aware of already. In conjunction with the David Bowie exhibition, ACME presents an eclectic mix of short talks exploring the man behind the icon, offering a broad insight into Bowie's work, as well as the man himself. The series touches on everything from his impact on the fashion world to his time on screen, and even personal accounts and first-hand insights into Bowie's time visiting Australia. Hear from Bowie megafans, critics, writers, musicians, and pop culture aficionados in this intimate, detailed look at Bowie's iconic work and life. Runs throughout the entire exhibition till 25th October, so keep an eye out for some more strange fascinations on the horizon. And the reason we're here tonight is one of our favourite Bowie fans who's been playing with the Thin White Ukes as part of the exhibition already. It's Michael Dwyer. Michael has written about popular culture for 28 years for publications including Rolling Stone, The Age, The Bulletin and Melody Maker. He was the managing editor of Express Magazine in Perth and has broadcast extensively on RTRFM in Perth and on the Triple J network nationally. He has interviewed many of the biggest names in rock, jazz and elsewhere, including Lou Reed, Brian Eno, U2, Sonny Rollins, Wayne Shorter, Chick Corea, Yoko Ono, Steve Wright and the man himself, David Bowie. He's currently working on a novel titled Son of Starman, a suburban Australian rock and roll mystery from space or thereabouts. He lectures in arts and culture, reporting at Monash University and performs with his latest musical project, The Thin White Ukes. Please join me in welcoming Michael Dwyer. Hello, thanks for coming everyone. I'm sure a lot of you here will recognise that as the first track on David Bowie's 1974 album Diamond Dogs, spoken word piece called Future Legend. Even if you didn't recognise it, I bet you'll have no trouble imagining the kind of impact it had on a 13-year-old boy growing up in a post-apocalyptic suburban wasteland called Canberra. <laughs> Diamond Dogs was quite simply the coolest thing I ever saw at that age. I gazed in awe at that cover for hours and hours and then I'd open the gatefold and I'd gaze at that for even longer. Um, I'm pleased to tell you the original artwork of that painting by a Dutch painter I wouldn't dare try and pronounce is on display. Can anyone help me? Guy something? Pilat? I've always wondered. It's far too many Vowels. Uh, it's on display in the David Bowie exhibition, David Bowie is exhibition downstairs 
and I stared at it for a really long time too. Uh, yes, as Rob told you, my name is Michael Dwyer and I have a David Bowie problem. Uh, this series of talks in connection with the exhibition is called Strange Fascinations and tonight I'm going to talk you through mine. Uh, it's a strange fascination which is all about the fear. It's about our mate Dave's ongoing narrative of modern anxiety. His pervasive sense of impending doom in concept albums like this, fear for his sanity, fear of some nebulous future disaster that keeps manifesting itself in various visions of dystopia like this one. Fear of stuff both imagined and very real. It's something that felt to me as a kid, and again now that I'm reflecting on it, to be something very honest and compelling. So, let me explain. Uh, when I got into David Bowie in the mid-1970s, this is what pop music looked like. I liked most of these records a lot, still play some of them, but the general intention of these records was unchanged, I think, since the Beatles sang All You Need Is Love. It was a diversion, pop music. It was something uh, to make you smile and dance and pash and essentially know that all was right with the world as you drove around with your car windows open. That's the beauty of pop music. This was something else. And obviously Bowie is indebted to people for the ability to go to these places, uh, not least Lou Reed, who we always need to mention if we're talking about where David Bowie was coming from. But in the context of this, what the hell was this? Who was that mutant dog guy? Who are the creepy puppies? Yeah. Can I adjust your mic? Sure. Uh, Diamond Dogs was obviously some kind of futuristic carnival of grotesques. This ain't rock and roll, this is genocide, was the opening gambit you just heard. I didn't even know what genocide was, I had to look it up. I had to look up a lot of words when I started getting into David Bowie. Uh, this was rock music at the end of the world. It was the last dance for a damned civilization in the throes of deviance and decay. I actually learned about Fritz Lang and George Orwell from Bowie as well. He was always passing on recommendations like that in a subtle kind of way. Uh, a lot of you will know that the Diamond Dogs album began as uh, an idea to stage 1984, or at least record a version of it. Uh, his original inspiration was the George Orwell novel. His concept mutated when Mrs. Orwell decided that there was no way she was going to let a cross-dressing glam rock degenerate get his hands on her husband's masterpiece of 20th century literature. I'm paraphrasing. She might not have exactly said that. Um, plenty of song titles remained on the album as it came out. 1984 being the obvious one. Big Brother being another obvious one. We Are the Dead, which was the, something that Winston Smith said to his lover, Julia, just before the stormtroopers came crashing through the plate glass window. Um, the, my favourite song on the album, Sweet Thing, always seemed to me to owe a lot to the scene in 1984 where Winston finds a prostitute of advanced years in a seedy part of town. Uh, all of these things remained, but Diamond Dogs had its own story to tell. And as Bowie always, as with the, all the stories that Bowie tells, it was incomplete. Uh, as we'd learned a couple of years older with Ziggy Stardust, a couple of years earlier, uh, he was really good at suggesting scenarios. There was nothing coherent about that narrative. There's nothing coherent about the Diamond Dogs narrative, but it suggested a world which people are still unpacking. Uh, the most interesting thing about this album, Diamond Dogs, for me, is that we now know he spent 
best part of a year, I guess, um, absolutely consumed by it. This is the set for the Fritz Lang inspired set design, the model, I should say, um, for what would be the Diamond Dogs tour. And here, these are just a few glimpses of artwork in David's own hand for a um, movie or stage show. We're not quite sure what, but he had this thing nutted out in a pretty detailed way. You'll see when and if, you may have already been to the exhibition, there are storyboards, uh, there's even a video that he made um, on a, what looks like a coffee table set or something in a hotel room uh, with all the blinds drawn, um, no doubt during one of his very long lost weekends of that period. Um, the question of how lost he was is fascinating to me. How much was art imitating life? David Bowie was teetering pretty close to the pit of personal doom at this point in his career, which shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone who'd been paying attention for the previous few albums. Uh, but I just wanted to do a speed recap on his public distress symbols in the five years leading up to Diamond Dogs. First, of course, he'd said hello world in the guise of a suicidal astronaut, a space-bound depressive who remarkably became a kind of pop culture hero in the very week of the glorious Apollo 11 moon launch in 1969. Talk about going against the grain, right? His next album, The Man Who Sold the World, I know this is not the original cover, Bowie Files, but it's the one that I bought when I was a kid and it's the one that I still like. Um, it was a very dark piece of work. Um, it opened with a, what sounded like an S&M sexual encounter with Satan himself. I smelt the burning pit of fear. Uh, this record also included several very key and unsettling songs about insanity. Uh, now, most Bowie fans know uh, the story that All the Mad Men, one of the key songs on this record, was about David's half-brother, Terry, who at this time, 1969, was living in the Cane Hill Asylum in South London. He's always very happy to see us, but he never has anything to say, Bowie said rather heartbreakingly at the time before he learned to keep all of his personal family information tightly under wraps. Uh, Terry would commit suicide in 1987. David idolised Terry. I wouldn't be the first to suggest that the unease that weaves through his work has a lot to do with the genuine fear that he might also succumb to what appears to be a thread of mental illness in his family. After The Man Who Sold the World came Hunky Dory. It was probably the most mum-friendly record of his catalogue. Uh, but the song that rattled me most was the last track, The Bulay Brothers. And again, I wouldn't be the first to suggest it might have had some connection with Terry. Uh, Bowie later called his publishing company Bulay Brothers Music, so he had some kind of affinity with the name. Um, after beautiful songs like Changes and Life on Mars, dark subtext obviously, but a beautiful orchestral song, uh, we had Bulay Brothers at the end and then this very unsettling coda. Now I've got no idea what's going on in there either, but I just think it's telling that a song of such beauty and elaborate symphonic grandeur should end on such a dark note. Again, as a 13-year-old boy, I used to kind of try and stop that record before I got to that if I was listening late at night. Um, Ziggy, of course. Next in Bowie's big doomsday book came the infamous fable of the androgynous alien guitar god, Ziggy Stardust. This album, obviously, uh, opened with Five Years, a song about the imminent end of the world. 
that raised the stakes for the messianic arrival of the Starman, and it ended with the unambiguous foreshadowing of rock and roll suicide. Next, Aladdin Sane. Insanity wasn't exactly subliminal on his next album. Uh, if you start to get into the album, it's much more a kind of view of from the precipice of modern American civilization, and then over the edge we go. So I don't mean to trivialise what was going on in Bowie's head at this time. Obviously, he was playing the unhinged uh, prophet of doom to dramatic effect in these various guises, Major Tom, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, Halloween Jack on Diamond Dogs. Uh, but the undercurrent of fear and insanity, I think, was real and escalating with the speed of life. And I think we as fans instinctively recognise that, however fantastic the characters and scenarios, the dread felt real. And for me, it spoke to my dread rather than the lightweight and fluffy stuff that I was tend to see on Countdown. Um, my introduction to Bowie was just days or weeks maybe before I went out and bought Diamond Dogs from Paling's record store in Garim Place in Canberra. Uh, my introduction was a documentary called Cracked Actor uh, by a BBC filmmaker named Alan Yentob. Um, it was named Cracked Actor after a particularly debauched and degenerate track on the Aladdin Sane album. And it was and remains a fascinating portrait of a rock star really on the brink of meltdown. As fate would have it, this rather rare film is screening here tomorrow at Acme 645 um, as part of the David Bowie on film series, which I think has just started. I'd really urge you to see it. Uh, it's a fascinating portrait. Um, see if you can detect here the telltale signs of uh, cocaine psychosis and maybe encroaching madness of another kind. Uh, in this scene, he's just had a mask made of his face for using the Diamond Dogs tour. But uh, I just find the next scene extremely telling about his headspace at this time. Well, he'd stay there for a couple of years at least. Um, it's well known that he fell into a very dangerous phase of drug addiction during his years in Los Angeles. His diet of, of peppers and milk and cocaine has become a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a gag in Bowie lore, but uh, it clearly uh, it helped him keep his girlish figure, but he doesn't look very healthy uh, and didn't do much for his anxiety issues as well. Um, just on a slightly, I don't know, potentially lighter note, uh, his dabblings in the occult also became the stuff of legend. Uh, recounted nowhere more vividly than in his wife Angie's tell-all memoir, Backstage Passes. I want to read a passage from this, uh, perhaps not the most reliable witness, but I think it does capture the intensity of Bowie's paranoia at this time. Um, just to set the scene here, Angie's in London. Uh, cocaine has pretty much driven a wedge between her and David. She gets a long-distance phone call from him and a house in Hollywood where he was being held captive by a coven of witches and warlocks who wanted to extract his bodily fluids. And if you've seen Rosemary's Baby, you know what happens next. Uh, he didn't know how to get out, uh, but um, Angie suggested he walk outside and hail a cab, which he did. So by the time she got there, they'd moved into a house in Doheny Drive, and David became convinced that the swimming pool uh, had a demon in it. The swimming pool was uh, actually possessed by the devil, so she went out and bought a bunch of paraphernalia for an exorcism. 
No strangers allowed, David said, so there we stood on that more than usually interesting night with a few hundred dollars worth of books, talismans and assorted other items from Hollywood's comprehensive selection of fine occult emporia. I say we, but to most intents and purposes I wasn't involved. My mission going out into the world where David feared to tread was buying the paraphernalia. That was over. Now I was just an observer. Whatever active assistance he needed would come from whatever coke whores and sycophants he had on hand that night. There he was then, primed and ready. The proper books and doodads were arranged on a big old-fashioned lectern. The necessary megalines of cocaine were laid out on the billiard table at his side. Everything was prepared. I took a stab at suggesting that given the adversary he thought he was facing, he might be better advised to go at it on some other night when he wasn't quite so stupendously stoned. But that didn't sit too well. If looks could kill, I'd have been dead right there and then. The intonation began, and although I had no idea what was being said or what language it was being said in, and I questioned the effectiveness of a supposedly solemn ritual interrupted every few minutes by sudden lurches towards the billiard table, followed by loud vacuum cleaner-like noises, I couldn't stop a weird cold feeling rising up in me as David droned on and on. There's no easy or elegant way to say this, I'll just say it straight. At a certain point in the ritual, the pool began to bubble. It bubbled vigorously, perhaps thrashed is a better term, in a manner inconsistent with any explanation involving air filters or the like. As David watched this happening in absolute terror, I tried to be flippant. Well, dear, aren't you clever? It seems to be working. Something's making a move, don't you think? but I couldn't keep it up. It was very, very strange. Even after my recent experiences, I was having trouble accepting what my eyes were seeing. I made a circuit of the house, peering at the pool from behind the sliding glass doors of each room, getting different angles on that crazy thing. But nothing changed it. The pool was definitely, absolutely, no doubt about it, bubbling with an energy for which there was no possible physical explanation. After some 15 minutes, by which time David had done about another gram of cocaine and made it to the end of his ritual intonations, the water began to calm. Soon it was back to normal, just another indoor pool in Hollywood. I kept my eye on it for the next 40 minutes or so and nothing unusual happened. And so with my heart in my mouth, I slid one of the glass doors open and ignoring David's panicked screams, went out to the edge to look in. I saw what I saw, nothing can change that. On the bottom of the pool was a large shadow or stain which had not been there before the ritual began. It was in the shape of the beast of the underworld. It reminded me of those twisted, tormented gargoyles screaming silently from the spires of medieval cathedrals. It was ugly, shocking, malevolent. It frightened me. So, I asked David if this happened. <laughs> um, his response was, I don't even remember Angela. So, <laughs> he took, what's that, the fifth, the third, the fifth amendment? Uh, but the fact that he's refused to speak, I mean, I don't believe for a second that happened personally, but uh, the fact that he's refused to speak about those times uh, indicates that he was in a state of really advanced uh, delusion, I think. Um, so, yeah. Thankfully, David escaped the clutches of Satan. He signalled his imminent escape from Los Angeles on this album, Station to Station, in which some cocaine fiend named the Thin White Duke hopped on a train to somewhere that sounded distinctly European. Uh, a bit like a scripted cracked actor, his advanced state of anxiety was beautifully captured in his first feature film, The Man Who Fell to Earth, in the role of a panic-stricken and desperately ill foreigner in a strange and vicious land, no acting was necessary. Berlin was the turning point uh, we know his salvation. There he got clean and apparently sane and healthy. 
As always, I was personally rather shaken by his new musical direction. The cold electronic thing was anathema to me in 1977. I liked rock, um, but like a lot of us, whatever Dave did, we knew we had to follow. Um, but I was delighted to discover he'd taken his sense of doom with him. And so on in various kind of movements and shades for the entire second half of the album. And although Lowe had some much more accessible stuff on the other side, it was this side that I think, well, people like me gravitated towards. Long, intense, uh, rather depressing, uh, gloomy instrumentals. Uh, the second album in this so-called Berlin trilogy uh, actually had a hit single on it, a massive hit single on it, and possibly his greatest. Uh, but I found myself, again, creeping inexorably towards this sort of stuff. Down, down, down went the cadences relentlessly, it always seems, with David. That's a track called Sense of Doubt. Um, the last album in the so-called Berlin trilogy arrived in 1979. These are some of the albums, other albums that came into my house in 1979. David gave us this. I remember being utterly perplexed about what this cover was all about. Uh, but there was obviously nothing remotely comforting about it. Personally, as a pimply and terrified teenager about to leave the horrors of high school and enter the real world, I have to say I could relate to this guy a lot more than this guy. <laughs> but the end of an era was upon us. The new decade coincided with my first job, an utterly demeaning and soul-destroying clerical position in the Canberra Public Service. That horror was reflected tenfold in David's very last album for RCA Records. Scary Monsters was his last really good album, I will argue, um, for, for at least 20 years. Uh, I know I can I'll have a fascinating conversation with anyone about that anytime. Even clean of cocaine, clear of LA and his Berlin exile, living free in New York, anxiety was a major player. In fact, it might be Bowie at his most defeated and nihilistic of all. That's the sound at the very end of the record, of a tape spool running out. Um, the show was over, it seemed to me, and not triumphantly. It was the sound of a man whose work was done for better or more likely worse. I tend to think of this record as David's act of abdication from the role that he'd spent 10 years adopting. Uh, Ashes to Ashes, the single buried Major Tom. It's No Game Part One was a howl of rage at the state of the world and It's No Game Part Two was the same song in a state of exhaustion and resignation. The really telling song on this record though, uh, for me, was Teenage Wildlife. Musically, it was a deliberate hero's rip-off, a sly inference from the master himself that he'd run out of ideas. And lyrically, here's just one passage. As ugly as a teenage millionaire pretending it's a whiz kid world, you'll take me aside and say, David, what shall I do? They wait for me in the hallway. I'll say, don't ask me, I don't know any hallways. But they move in numbers and they've got me in a corner. I feel like a group of one. No, no, they can't do this to me. I'm not some piece of teenage wildlife. And with that last howl like a wolf in a trap, the David Bowie that I knew disappeared. Sure, there were glimpses of fear in the 1980s, under pressure, loving the alien, those visions of swastikas in the middle bit of China Girl. But I lost interest when I heard that reggae Tina Turner duet. 
Uh, by the time of Dancing in the Street, Brand Bowie was all a bit happy families for me. He probably was happy, making a lot of money, uh, free of those insane voices in his head. No more Ziggy, no more Aladdin Sane, no more Thin White Duke. Uh, no more the devil himself. Um, but funny how contentment made him also, to me, just a little unremarkable. And again, this is a conversation that, you know, clearly he was very popular in the 80s and a lot of people got into him in the 80s and that's a beautiful thing. Maybe I'd lost a bit of my fear and loathing too as I moved into adulthood. But well, for whatever reason, uh, Dave and I had run out of things to say to each other. Uh, in the me decade, we sort of drifted apart. Uh, there's a lot I could say about the 90s. Albums like Outside and Earthling clawed back a bit of intrigue for me. This was a particularly dark record about a ritualistic art murder of a baby girl. It was, I spent about a week trying to unpack it. It was very dark, but ultimately I just didn't like the song so much. So I, I know I can come back to it one day. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leap ahead now, though, to uh, April 2002, the day I met David Bowie on the 35th floor of the Sony Music headquarters in Madison Avenue uh, in the recently wounded and paranoid city of New York. He had a new album called Heathen, that's why I was there to interview him for Rolling Stone magazine. And I'll never forget the moment I heard it because it was about one o'clock in the morning, I'd arrived in New York and by the time I got to the hotel uh, I picked up the CD from reception uh, in just a plain little white envelope. It wasn't out yet and I got the management to bring a stereo up to my room. I knew I was interviewing him at 10 o'clock in the morning so it was all a bit panicky. Um, but I pressed play and I was immediately plunged back into a familiar state of unease. So maybe you've got to be a complete Bowie tragic to hear the connection between that song and a song called Big Brother off Diamond Dogs. Um, I can play them back to back for you later, but it instantly struck me. The similar instrumentation, similar tonality going on. Um, and in a flashback to Diamond Dogs that I greatly appreciated that day, he said to me he lamented the whole Orwellian soulless existence, which we do seem to be heading towards if we're not careful, and we are not careful. There's my happy snap with Dave. He was pretty chipper during the interview, I have to say. Uh, although he did talk a fair bit about the grim state of the world. I can't remember what tragic uh, atrocity had just taken place in the Middle East that day, but he was shaking his head about that as I was setting up my tape recorder. We talked about his fears for his new baby daughter, Alex. The full reality of having a new child is the full reality of the world that you brought her into, he observed. He brought up his half-brother, Terry, as well in the context of depression and bipolar disorder, which he alluded to having... Uh, feared in his younger days. He wanted to deny outright that the grim tidings of Heathen had, Heathen had anything to do with the September 11 attacks, which had just been a few months previously. Um, he said, My albums have not necessarily been the happiest albums in the world. I'm not very good with overall word pictures or politicisation of affairs but I can get into those rather negative corners of our psyche and relate to them quite strongly. I feel it very strongly, that lower level tension that I understand we all have, and I'm good at kind of capturing that in musical form. 
I think I'm very good at non-specific nagging fear, he said. Yes, I thought. Yes, you are, Dave. Um, I may have been fooling myself, but I thought I was seeing the real David Bowie that day. We all like to think that we can glimpse the real David Bowie through all these veils, all these layers. Uh, but a new father with real fears, uh, the kind of fears that had struck a chord with me 30 years earlier. And I was about to be a new father myself, and I was about to rediscover those fears myself as well. Um, well, I started with a song today. So I'm going to finish with one. I thought if I'm talking about fear, I should do something that terrifies me. And it's sitting down in front of you with an acoustic instrument and singing a song. <clears throat> this is off Bowie's Heathen album.
just won't be afraid Thank you. I should ask if there are any questions. Yeah. So if, if he actually, no one knew who he was and he started his career right now, where do you think, where do you think he'd fit in and how do you think he'd, he'd fit in? And would he, do you think it, he would have come out as all those characters in the 70s or would he be a very different character? If he hadn't been here in the 70s. I'm saying if he was here yeah, now. Yeah, if he was here now. Um, I don't know, the, obviously it's very hypothetical and difficult to say it's a totally different environment and I don't think he would... Uh, be quite so interested in pop music uh, because pop music at then was at the vanguard of culture. Now it's not really. It's something else. I think he'd probably, you know, be a fantastic app designer or something. Uh, um, but uh, the, other, the, the other thing that I have to say is if he arrived today, pop music would be totally different. He changed pop music drastically. He changed the culture, the entire culture, really radically. So. If he arrived today and he hadn't arrived in the 70s, there would be an awful lot of work to do and he might be the person doing it. I don't think Lady Gaga or Madonna or Prince or a lot of the people who had very obviously um, you know, uh, been inspired by him uh, would have been inspired by him, so it would have been a much impoverished scene that we're talking about. But yeah, it's a question that gets asked. Yeah. About the interview that you mentioned um, yeah. doing with David, you obviously had a tape recorder running. Were the aspects of the interview that you decided in retrospect when you sat down to actually publish your article that you decided, oh, look, I won't include that? Um, oh, yeah, always. Unfortunately, that's, a, that's just a byproduct of the um, method because uh, you get 20 minutes, um, you get 20 minutes with the artist usually. Um, David very kindly do, did what a lot of um, very um, experienced media manipulators do, which was when the minder came in at 20 minutes, he said, oh, no, no, let's give us another five. So I got maybe 25 minutes with him, uh, but that you transcribe t 25 minutes of conversation and that's, you know, it might be 10,000 words. Yeah. Uh, so any article that I wrote is like 2,000 words, so there's tons of stuff that didn't mm -hmm. make the cut. Did you ever experience like L'Esprit de Scalia where you leave the interview and you think, oh, I should have asked him that? Yeah, but only for the last 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a bit funny. I mean, after really, you know, there were certain things I wanted to ask him. The demon on the bottom of the pool was a big one. But it, they're trivial because, uh, I mean, I don't really want to know what Ziggy Stardust was. I don't want to ask him that question. I've got you know, my own ideas, that, that, that's got a life of its own and anything he said could only diminish it probably. So it's quite hard to ask specific, specific questions. It was a particularly hard interview to prepare for, bizarrely.
I'm just wondering if you sensed any impending doom in um, his later albums, Reality or The Next Day. Uh, yeah, little bits, yeah. Um, I haven't really liked um, the, uh, the, the Next Day, yes, absolutely, yeah. What if I'd had, I could have gone into The Next Day for sure. I feel like The Next Day was a slightly different kind of thing. I feel like that was a media event first and a, and a musical work second, and that's brilliant. I thought, you know, it's, it kind of plays into what I was saying about you, it's very hard to make a statement with... 45 minutes worth of music now, but you can sure as hell make a statement by releasing an album which is a defaced version of your earlier album that nobody else knows about until 30 seconds before it drops. So that was really the value of that record to me. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.